Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are finishing up our series on the Godfather trilogy by talking about The Godfather Part 3, the 1990 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetas. Hi. So before we jump in, two quick notes and announcements. So our question for Spotify listeners is, what is your favorite part three of a film series? Whether that's a trilogy or a trilogy that continued and became a series, (laughs) what's your favorite part three entry into whichever of those? And as we alluded to in the previous episode, we are announcing what our next Patreon goal is. So for 1,500 patrons. When we pass 1,500 patrons, that will unlock a three-part series on the Back to the Future trilogy, which is going to be really, really fun. As we've mentioned before, it almost beat The Godfather. It was very close, and I've enjoyed talking about The Godfather, but I'm also very excited to Mm -hmm. revisit the Back to the Future trilogy. So, looking forward to that. For now, we're going to talk about The Godfather Part 3, which I had not seen, I'm pretty sure, since high school. I Mm. think I just watched it the one time, and I remembered almost nothing about this movie. (laughs) So it was really, really fascinating to watch it again, especially after having revisited the first two parts. My memory of it was not a pleasant experience. It was a, you know, I put it on and I watched it to kind of fulfill my duty of having seen them all and then didn't really ever want to see it again. But I had like a fuzzy image in my head of Andy Garcia and Sofia Coppola, like standing and looking at each other and then something on stairs outside of an opera house. And that's pretty much all I remembered. So it was really interesting going on this journey. And My overall feeling at the end of all of this was that at any given time, if you had asked me if I was enjoying the movie, I don't know that I would have said yes. If you had asked me if I knew what was going on, I definitely would have said no Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of like Michael and the Pope and businesses and stuff. But at the end, thinking back on it, I was like, I'm glad I watched that. That was a really kind of interesting extra note to have at the end. And it's Interesting because there's, you know, a new cut of this, which Brian, I know you've seen. Mm -hmm. And the title of that is The Godfather Coda, The 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 Death of Michael Corleone. Right. And I do feel like that name feels more appropriate. Mm -hmm. I feel like that encapsulates what this felt like watching versus an actual, this is a part three entry into the thing. So definitely not a perfect movie. And we can talk about that and kind of structural issues character design issues, but overall it was interesting to see a filmmaker and actors and and the whole crew, everybody kind of return to this property and have one last go and and reflect on what had been created. So ultimately I enjoyed my experience this time and I'm glad that I watched it. I probably will not watch it again for a very long time, but I, I enjoyed it. So yeah, I'm curious about you guys. Trisha, I know you saw it before we recorded part two, so you yeah. had a bit longer to, to, to sit with it than I have. Yeah, yeah. That was my first time watching it. So oh, wow. I, yeah. I have only ever seen it that one time. Although I did go back and revisit some stuff here and there since, you know, just to get ready for this podcast and, and think back on like, wait, what 
happened in that scene. <laughs> yeah, this movie is ultimately like doesn't work for me. And I think its reputation has certainly like soured. It it received kind of mixed reviews when it came out, but like mostly positive. This was nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. Like, you know, it was mostly positively received at the time. And then in the intervening years has kind of really deteriorated in people's minds. I think knowing that about this film really colored my experience of it because I've been hearing about like how notoriously bad it is <laughs> my entire life, right? Where it's just like the Godfather Part Three, it's so bad, it's so terrible. And like, I don't, I don't think that. I certainly think that reports about its flaws were exaggerated by a lot. So I think it's you know people love to trash things, and so I think people just trashed this because they they felt like they could or whatever. And it's certainly not as bad as people say, but like ultimately, I think when you stand it next to the other two, right. it does start to really be like, what is this? Because it feels so different, right? <laughs> There's like this really big time gap. It's a really different story, different cast of characters. There's like a lot of tonal things that I think are really different in land, like really differently. And also like the focus of the story, I think is on something like on paper, it's sort of, thematically about the family still and like the family relationships and it's still about Michael's arc. So like it's still essentially exploring the same themes in a lot of ways, but just in so many other ways. And yeah, I'm, I am excited to talk about like structure and character design and, and some of the sequences in this in so many other ways. I'm just like, this is not the same thing at all. Mm. <laughs> this is definitely not. And ultimately like, as a movie on its own, it can't stand on its own, but also like doesn't kind of belong with the other two. So it just feels like it's in this weird in-between place where it kind of doesn't work for me. And and some of that's just like surface level. Like I can't get past Al Pacino's haircut. Stuff. <laughs> right. Like, why, why? I just don't understand what happened <laughs> with, so, with some things like that. I just find them really distracting. Obviously, that's that's like a nitpick, childish thing, but that contributes to the overall sort of like disorienting. What am I watching? Sure. That's one of the things I do remember being in the way for me also. So I was prepared for that, at least, and for Al Pacino to look different than I remember. Like, he's so different from when he was younger. It's a little yes. weird. And his performance, which we can get to, is really different here with the character. But anyway, so all that to say, I'm excited to dive into it with you guys, you know. It's not like, I wouldn't say this is like a bottom of the barrel, this is the worst movie ever. It's certainly not. But it's just like The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 are, like the bar is so high right. that I think you're just, it's too tall of an order for this movie. Yeah, yeah. The bar is basically as high as it can it could be. possibly be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, yeah. So, Brian, what are your thoughts? Because I know you've seen it kind of a couple times recently, right? Yeah, I've weirdly seen this movie three times in as many years. <laughs> just because I watched the the trilogy a couple years ago, partially because they were screening the first two. And then it was like, well, let's finish it out. And then last year, or I guess 2020, the Godfather Coda was released. And I thought, you know what? I'm really interested in what this is. Like, I'm kind of down to revisit this movie and see what the what the new cut is. And I can talk a little bit later about, about what the changes were. And, and ultimately, it's roughly the same movie, but with some interesting choices. And then rewatched it 
basically this week to talk about it now. And so there, there are things I really love about this movie. I think there's a lot that's great on paper, you know, in terms of like it's Michael's redemption story, right? So if if there's this sort of inverse parabola that happens with him from the first movie to the second movie, now he's trying to sort of dig his way out of it. But of course, because of who he, he is and has been, he loses the thing he loves most. Like that is, you know, that's an interesting idea. There's a new hothead with who wants power and it's Sonny Jr. And like Andy Garcia is the perfect Sonny Jr. <laughs> And then, like, dealing with the high-up politics of the Catholic Church, though, the fact that, like, they've assassinated John Paul I is a little out there. But, like, I I think it's good on paper, and I think a lot of it is good on the screen, too. Like, there is – I would say this is sort of like an Attack of the Clones thing where it's like – where it's like there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but then there's all this other stuff there that just makes it not good, right? And so I I think it's like – as you were saying, Trisha, I think it's like a perfectly fine movie that just doesn't stand up against its predecessors. Like you you knocked it out of the park and then you somehow knocked it out of the park again so much so that people are arguing like which of your first two movies are the greatest <laughs> movie of all time? And right. then you make a third movie that's like, okay. And like some of it is great. It still looks beautiful. It still looks like a Godfather movie in so many ways, the way it's shot and like the sound design and that kind of thing. But yeah, ultimately it's just a, it's, it has more problems. If Coppola is a different filmmaker at this point, you know, he yeah. had his imperial phase in the seventies, Godfather conversation, Godfather part two, apocalypse. Now it's just like, now it's 18 years later and he is trying to go back. We've talked about many times about the back to the well sequels many decade plus later and how they're always hard to kind of really capture that again. So yeah, excited to jump into it. I think it is a, it's a fine movie that I enjoy and there are plenty of problems that we will absolutely get into. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And Alex, what about you? What are your overall thoughts? Yeah, I kind of feel similarly to Brian where, you know, I saw it for the first time this week because I have also Mm. never seen it. Um, Mm. I think I saw the first like 15 minutes at some point. So I remember like the party scene and like seeing, you know, older Al Pacino and Diane Keaton and their new haircuts and stuff. But besides (laughs) that, I don't remember much about anything. And it was interesting because it was like it wasn't terrible like there there was it was doing plenty of godfathery things it was you know now diving into the catholic church and the corruption of the you know the bank and, and all those things that that's that is kind of what i want from a godfather movie is what are all the different worlds and spheres mm-hmm. that you know the kind of mafia business kind of gets into we had like the casino gambling world the you know the the drug world and so i think, I think it was interesting to be going to this like dark underbelly of the Catholic church. I, I like exploring these worlds and also the convolutedness of the plot for me, wasn't any like harder or easier to understand than part two. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like people say like, Oh, part three is so convoluted. You can't follow any of it. I'm like, uh, I couldn't follow part two either. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. So it, in some ways, a lot of the complaints I'd heard about it, like didn't really, strike me as vastly different from previous Godfather movies in some ways. But there are a lot of just like, just kind of stylistic and just performance and some cinematography. There's enough bumps pretty quickly where it starts to feel like, ah, this isn't a masterpiece. This is definitely not a movie where every shot feels like a painting and 
every moment feels mm-hmm. so perfectly timed right. and you know this push in is exactly where you want it and that's what you feel in part 1 and part 2 even if i can't follow what's happening i know that there's like a masterfulness to this scene that i don't understand <laughs> but part 3 is lacking that kind of like perfect vision mm. and and so that is where i do understand why people like really kind of are taken aback by it because it's like, wait a minute, how could this be part of the same thing as these two things when those two things felt so like deeply intentional? You know, every frame is what it's supposed to be. And I was, you know, looking at one of the scenes in this movie when we're in, you know, Vinny's like apartments and it just it felt <laughs> like more like a cheap like TV kind of like set mm-hmm. or something. The lighting felt kind of weird. And I was like, oh yeah, this doesn't feel like a Godfather movie. This feels like a 90s thriller or something. So that was disconcerting. And then of course, yeah, there were strange plot lines, some strange choices. Uh, we're going to get into all that in a minute, but there were parts that, that I was, you know, almost feeling like I was going to laugh. You know, I was, I was, I was like laughing at the movie versus with the movie. And that's not, <laughs> yeah. not a good feeling when you're watching a Godfather movie. So yeah, I landed ultimately in the same place of like, yes, it is clearly inferior to the first two, However, I did enjoy a lot of aspects of it, and I didn't feel like it was vastly, you know, below the other two either. It still felt like it was a big, ambitious Coppola movie, so with a lot of weird choices. <laughs> so it's <laughs> yeah. so yeah, it was it was an interesting mixed bag, and because I went in with such low expectations, I did actually get a lot of enjoyment out of it, and mm. I enjoyed what they were going for. You know, which was as you said, Brian, the redemption reflection kind of a feeling like I I think get more invested into that kind of a story than the slow decline into more and more corruption of part two like I I think there I am pulled a bit more into the hope Michael's hope that he can get out or he can kind of make an exit that is almost more compelling to me as like a goal for the protagonist as opposed to a steeper and steeper decline into paranoia and corruption mm-hmm. um so so there were there was more for me to hold on to as far as like i had hopes for the characters um mm-hmm. which is another thing that is hard for me in part two where it's like i don't know what i'm hoping for like in the second half of the movie for michael it just feels like depression <laughs> yeah yeah especially right with the michael storyline yeah too as we talked about yeah there's these stylistic things that you're talking about and the 90s-ness of it and just <laughs> like the the filmmaking of the 90s was so different than the filmmaking of the 70s. And I feel like this movie tries very hard to maintain the sort of, you know, aesthetic approach that it had. But there was just certain 90s things. Even just, like, now the movie is taking place in the 70s, right? Like, late 70s. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's also just, it's a different time period within the world of the film, too. Right. Like that's the crystal just, skull thing. Right. Like, <laughs> like something yeah, about it is, yeah. it feels it feels a little weird. But I, I was resonating with, as you were saying, Alex, there's the themes and the way, you know, the aspects of kind of the American dream or, you know, the examining our systems, how that has evolved in part three is interesting. And, you know, there's a line at some point, I think Michael says, I've been trying to become legitimate for so long. And the more legitimate I am, like the more corrupt I am or something like that, right. where it's like the the politicians, the system, the church, all that stuff feels as corrupt, if not more corrupt than when he started. And so I think that's a really interesting thing that does feel in line with the the Godfather series and how that evolves. And that there is this kind of redemption 
arc as we're talking about and that Michael's trying to be like to do it right and be clean, but like you just can't, you can't escape. And you know, yes, the famous line, the one famous line from this movie, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thought I was out, pull me back in. And mm. so I, I find all of that stuff really interesting and kind of thematically compelling of him trying to reach for redemption and try to wash away his sins and come, you know, to terms with what he's done and he killed his brother and all this stuff. So I feel like thematically that's cool to have that going on while he's simultaneously being pulled under and, you know, can never really escape. So that stuff works me, but yes, we can get into some of like character and plot stuff that is bumpy and maybe inconsistent and not super coherent also with what Michael has going on. Yeah. I think actually though, the redemption arc, while I agree that it's an interesting way to go, I actually ultimately don't find it as compelling as the corruption arc that the first two movies are about. And so, like, I feel like the redemption arc is so common and we see it so often in film. And I agree with you that, like, the the ripple effect of, like, Michael's choices basically in the past make him unable to be redeemed and the systems that he's in absolutely also refuse to like give him any redemption or any peace because they are in fact more corrupt than he is. I think all of that stuff is really interesting, but I think that a corruption arc is what I associate with the Godfather almost as like a concept, right? Like the Godfather itself is about corruption. And so someone trying to like crawl their way out of that after having already gone to like the deepest, darkest place just rings kind of hollow to me to begin with. And I think that that problem, that sort of hollowness to like everything Michael claims that he's trying to do and like get out of it and whatever, part of, there are a couple of things why I don't believe him when he says that. And one of them is that he said it before, right? Like he's been saying that all along to Kay. He said that in the first Godfather movie. And then we saw that after that we had Godfather part two and we knew that that was absolutely not the case. And so part of me feels like this weird meta thing where I'm like Kay and he's like, no, we're definitely going to be legitimate now. And I'm like, you've lied to me before, Michael. And so the fact that the movie is kind of playing it earnestly, even though I'm in on like, no, I know the Corleone is like, I know that that's a lie is weird to me that there's kind of like a self-reflexive hollowness to the the themes that the movie is claiming to be about. So that's thing one. Thing two, though, I think is a dialogue issue that this movie runs into quite a lot, which is that there are many scenes in this movie that lack subtext or like enough subtext, I think, where characters just kind of like say stuff that the movie just wants you to believe. And... You know, there are there are many, many scenes that are examples of this, but it's just like everything that, you know, the, the first couple of movies are so like the, we talked about how the power dynamics are so subtle in the way that they like shift within the scene and like characters are, you know, often saying so much less than what they really mean. And like they're saying almost nothing or there there's, you know, the subtext thing that happens where they're saying one thing, but we know the truth to be something else. But there are not that many scenes in this movie where there's that richness to the subtextual, like, life beneath the surface of the scene. And I miss that. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's, again, why I think the themes of this ultimately, like, kind of 
ring a little hollow to me or just aren't as compelling because the corruption arc I believe and the redemption arc I don't think that I believe. And the dialogue is, I think, part of the big reason why. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that I was just thinking when you were talking about Michael's redemption arc, especially like I like the I like it again on paper, but I feel like I I wish I felt it more. Mm -hmm. I wish I really felt him struggling and just being like, I'm really, really trying here, you know? And and the Godfathers, we talked about in the first movie, there's these rules. And I almost want there to be this sort of strict set of new rules that Michael has where he's like, my father would have done this. Old Michael would have done this. I am not doing that. I'm going to find the legitimate way to deal with this problem. But we don't get that. We get like a lot of scenes of him saying like, I'm going legitimate. I'm going to be good. And then... But I'm also like buying the entire church and, like you know, yeah. just like these things where you're kind of you're not really following it. And it doesn't it doesn't sink in like it doesn't. I really don't believe it or I don't feel like it's earned. So when Kay says, like, I always loved you, Michael, I'm like, that just doesn't feel earned. No. Yeah. Similarly, Vincent's arc into Godfather doesn't feel earned. It's like, oh, you're the wild card. You got to be careful. Like, I got respect for you, kid, but you're messing up a lot. Also, you're now Godfather. Like, wait, what? When did that happen? You know? So I feel like there are these attempts at these arcs. But as you were saying, Tricia, through structure and through dialogue and through a lot of that stuff, we, we just don't actually believe them in the same way the first two movies everything feels believable everything i mean not not literally everything maybe but like almost everything feels like it's just organically happening in front of you and this Mm -hmm. movie feels more in a lot of ways this movie feels more like a movie it feels like you can see the scenes you can see the threads as opposed to just feeling like it like they put a camera on some characters and you get to see what they're up to yeah for sure well interestingly that yeah, you say this feels more like a movie, and I definitely know what you mean in that respect. But also, I think for me, for all these reasons that you guys are highlighting, it, I think what made me enjoy the experience this time was not reading it as a movie, as almost more just this is, I'm watching some people reflect upon a thing that they mm-hmm. made once upon a time and sort of that more meta way. Because it does have all these flaws, as you guys are pointing out, the the Vincent arc, which could have been, to your point, Trisha, you know, the the corruption arc for this movie, right? We could have watched yeah. him, you know, get sucked in, or you know, mirror Michael's journey a little bit, and it's it's not really that. It's this kind he of he doesn't other thing. have an arc. Right, and he's the same person at the beginning of the movie that bit that guy's ear as he is at the end. Of the right, movie. he's like slightly more disciplined, but it, mm-hmm, yeah. it's fast-tracked. Like you were saying, Brian, it doesn't yeah. feel earned. In a three-hour movie, it's fast-tracked, and that feels <laughs> wrong. Right. right. <laughs> and, I'm yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the K scene, because that was a scene that really stood out to me, to your point, Trisha, of, like, dialogue where people are telling me what I'm supposed to feel about these people. And, you know, it's weird, because I, I enjoyed seeing Al Pacino and Diane Keaton kind of do a before-midnight, yeah. like, walking around uh-huh. Italy and, like— see them smile and joke. And I was like, oh, there kind of is chemistry there. Maybe like, I understand why maybe they were in love at one point, but then there's just this really heavy handed scene where it's like, and now we're going to again, fast track all of the 20 years that have passed. And then eight years since we've talked and, you know, try to tell the audience that this is where things are now such that again, like you said, Brian, like when Kay says, I've always loved you. I'm like, no, you didn't. Like, uh-huh. I'm like absolutely not. No. How could we you? saw the what? scenes where you yeah, really did not, sure did not love him. For sure did not love him. Right. 
Yeah, so it's it is this kind of weird thing where it almost feels like the filmmakers saying this is how they wished people felt about things now, but right. it isn't there in the text. It isn't in the scene by scene plot evolution of it. It's just kind of there on the surface to to think about and thinking about things can be fun, but it's not that's not what stories are supposed to do. Yeah. Well, it's going to get even more meta. Coppola just announced that the next his next movie is uh, The Godfather Resurrections. So, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> if your New Year's resolution is to watch more movies, especially movies that might be a bit outside your comfort zone, movies that are a little more artsy and a little less bouncy, then I highly recommend Mubi. Mubi, M-U-B-I, is a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From brand new work from emerging filmmakers to modern masterpieces from today's greatest icons, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. To try Mubi for free for 30 days, simply click the link in the show notes, or if you're watching on YouTube, click the pop-up in the top right of the screen. Or simply head to Mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. I mean, yeah, so speaking of, you know, bad dialogue, strange choices, should we just get to the elephant in the room and talk yeah. about the love story of this movie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the Vincent and Mary love story? Yeah. Well, this is what I was thinking about, actually, just a minute ago <laughs> when I was talking about dialogue and, like, in some of the scenes where we just feel like the character work isn't really being done and the dialogue is just kind of pasting the character work onto the top of it. And pretending like it's done. And and quickly, I want to, I think that one of the early examples of it that really doesn't work for me is the rooftop scene with Michael and Mary. Mm. And part of that is because yeah. that scene is dubbed. And it is mm. very it felt really awkward. It's very yeah. awkward because it's very clearly dubbed. And it's, you know, clearly they were, you know, dealing with wind or noise or whatever it was that day. And so, like, there's a dubbing problem in that scene. God bless those actors. But the dialogue itself is like, Dad, I wish I were more like you yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever her line is. And like, you know, Sofia Coppola has been much maligned for her performance in this movie. But that scene was early on. And and I was, you know, that going into watching The Godfather Part 3, I was on the lookout for Sofia Coppola's performance because it is the number one thing that people tell you about this movie if you've never seen it. And they just kind of throw all of its problems onto her. But I was watching that scene and I was like, first of all, she's dubbing that because they didn't get the audio on the day. But second of all, who could deliver that line, right? right. Like the character work isn't on the paper for her to read the line with like depth and nuance. It's just like a flat delivery of like an unrealistic sentiment. That's not how people talk in movies. And we don't like hearing them talk that way in movies. It it grates on us, right? Mm -hmm. A lack of subtext in movies is a problem because it doesn't leave any room for us to do any work. It doesn't leave any room for us to wonder or engage 
or imagine what it would be like to be those characters, right? It's not just that it feels unrealistic. It's that it kind of boxes us out of the scene and like makes it more, you know, stilted and scene-like instead of inviting us to sit at the table with those characters. And so that scene is a pretty egregious example. And the writing is a problem for both characters, to be clear. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, a lot of the Vincent and Mary scenes are some of the most, I, I was going to say, outstanding examples of the lack of a lack of subtext in this film. The one where they're sitting in the, like, restaurant or coffee shop or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're like, what do you think about your dad? And he's like, oh, my dad's sunny. He was the prince of the city. And, like, your dad was, and it was just like, I mean... Yeah. Andy Garcia is working hard, and, and so is <laughs> yeah. Sofia Coppola. But those those lines are hard to deliver because instead of showing us something, right, or like talking around what they mean, they're just saying it out loud. Yeah, actors get blamed for bad writing. They do all the more time. often than people realize, and I think like especially Mary and like maybe Coppola shouldn't write flirting. You know, <laughs> yeah, just like. I, which, like, you know, there's, there Lucas. isn't really in the first two movies, but it's like, right. I'm your cousin and you haven't kissed me yet. Hey, let me show you how to roll these gnocchis. Come over here. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's so, like, kind of B-movie, you know, mm, I think. Rom-com. Uh, ro- yeah, rom but, like, bad rom-com. Not that good rom Not even, like, average rom-com. <laughs> sure. And the thing is, also, good actors can disguise bad writing. So a lot of times we don't notice bad writing because the actor either fought for the line to be better or Mm -hmm. they just delivered it in a way where we didn't notice like that it was poorly written. And Sofia Coppola, bless her heart, is not Al Pacino and, you know, Robert De Niro or any of these people. Like she is the Godfather three of this cast where, (laughs) where she's like, (laughs) she's not bad. She's just up against these, these giants basically. And at the time lacked experience, right? Right. You're talking about, you're talking about actors. She's not an experienced actor. Yeah. Actors can save it, but the only thing that gets you there is years of experience. Absolutely. Working with dialogue like this, attempting to find the thing within it that makes it deliverable. Right. And there's there's a lot of interesting production things with these movies that that change the shape of them. Where Clemenza was supposed to be in part two, he was supposed to be the Frank Pantangeli character, where he, which would have made that hit home even more. Where it's like this guy mm-hmm. that you know as like the guy from the first movie is now turning on the family. Tom Hagen was supposed to be in this movie, and he was supposed to have a much bigger part, and he was going to be kind of the the moral counterpart to Michael, basically. And then for both of them, for money reasons, didn't happen. So then, you, you know, Coppola has to rewrite and reconfigure these characters. And then Mary was, there were like multiple people cast. Winona Ryder was finally cast and that was like going to be a go. And then that kind of changed last second. So there's there's a lot that, you know, people want to point a finger and, you know, it's like when, I think I made this uh, metaphor before, but when the waiter brings your food out cold, yep. you blame the waiter. You don't blame, the, you know, all the other things that are happening behind the scenes that maybe made it happen. You're like, you're the person I'm seeing, so you're the person I'm going to blame. So yeah. she unfortunately has caught a lot of flack for a lot of problems with this movie. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know, I mentioned in my introduction that there were scenes where I just laughed out loud, and it was because I got these, like, Attack of the Clones like, right. vibes from the love scenes, where it, it felt like it was like a George Lucas prequel scene. You know, the gnocchi scene is perfect. It's it's like, you know, force cutting the pear or whatever. <laughs> it's <was just> strange... <laughs> 
this is not sexy, really. This is very odd. And you're trying to like force this upon me as like a really sexy, like enticing scene. And yeah, it's like there's nothing you can do with that as an actor, you know, to make it sexy or good. It's just it's just an awkward setup. It's like, you know, you look at, you know, the room. It's I feel like there were scenes in this movie where people are talking about something that, you know, we have a cultural understanding of the taboo around cousins dating or being in love. But in the world of this movie, I I can't orient to like what world this takes place in, you know, similarly to the room where it's like, they'll be playing with this like teenage boy that comes over and he's like, Hey, can I join in? And it's like, (laughs) yeah, Hey Tommy. It's just like, wait, what world are we in? When, when every single character, like multiple characters, their response to the idea of these cousins being together is like, it's dangerous. Like, it's dangerous <laughs> is like the key word. But I don't know what that means. Like, right. what does it, it's dangerous mean? Does it mean like somebody's going to kill you because it's like so shameful to be with your cousin? Or is it dangerous just because it's like a bad idea? So it was hard to orient myself around this love story because it seemed like so much of the film was shaped around it. It's like this is at the core of like what Mary wants and it's and her father won't let her have it. But I don't even understand the rules of the world that, are, are making people react to it or, and and why they're reacting it to this in this way where they're kind of okay with it, but it's also dangerous. Anyways, what did you guys make of that? Mm. Because I think it, it wasn't just ancillary to the main story, you know, by the end, like in the moment before her death, you know, Mary is confronting her father about it. Mm. And so I, it just struck me as really odd that I, I wasn't ever, I guess, oriented to like what it all means or like, why is this at the core of, of this father-daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I was thinking about it after the movie ended and kind of trying to reverse engineer what I imagined, like, the function of it to be. And it was actually in it less than I remembered. It's clearly still a very central part of the film, and even when they aren't on screen, it's, you know, a part of what's steering the events of the of the movie. And ultimately, I was sort of taking the dangerous thing as meaning more like, you know, ultimately what happens is that her being infatuated with her cousin and them having this relationship kind of ends up getting her killed because mm. Andy Garcia is going to become the new godfather mm, and he's right. still part of this. And so, like, it's... I, I feel like ultimately the function narratively seemed to me like it was supposed to be, you know, like if Michael could just get his family like out and away from all of this, like once and for all, maybe like there was hope for them and they could go on and stuff. But because of the situation that, you know, all the actions that he's taken, his family is still trapped such that like his daughter can't even like fall in love and just be a normal person without it leading to her death. And so, you know, I think that's functionally what, how it related to Michael's arc. And, you know, the cousins thing, I was able to kind of be like, well, you know, I'm like, this is sort of a more modern taboo thing. Like maybe it's not as big of a deal culturally going back, yada, yada. So I was more reading the dangerous as, you know, the don't get wrapped up in this business because we're trying to get out of it kind of a thing. But I do agree that it was not clear. I had to kind of go back and put that in there. And it was unclear throughout what the expectations were, what the cautions were, like 
how everyone else was feeling. And so that does make it hard to orient yourself to any of that, especially that the more thematic purpose that ultimately is is a huge, it's the finale, right? It's she gets right. murdered and he, you know, Michael loses his daughter and everything is even more terrible than it was when he started. And so to play such a big role in the climax of the film and his arc, not enough work is given to how, as we're talking about, people are reacting to it. And also just the, to your point, Trish, of the, the writing and the characters and the chemistry. Like, I feel like we need to feel like these two people cannot, like, there's no stopping them. They're just, they're right. magnetically drawn to each other and that's going to supersede everything. Right. And that's <laughs> what I feel like the dialogue is trying to tell me, but I am not feeling in those actual scenes moment to moment. Yeah, I agree. And I thought a lot about the love story and what it's trying to do thematically, maybe. And I agree with you, Alex, that unfortunately, part of the biggest issue is that it's not clear. Like, I don't think that this, like, sort of taboo cousins that are in love with each other is, like, it can't work or it doesn't belong in a Godfather movie necessarily, right? I brought this up, actually, on on Patreon when I was watching the movie because— for some reason, I had never heard that this was like what the the you know B plot of it was, and I was like, how has no one ever told me that there's like these cousins love each other B plot of this film? I feel like that is pretty significant information. But one of our patrons pointed out that like you know if the movies are about family corruption, then maybe there's like a thematic echo going on where it's like yeah, the problem with Mary is that like the only person she can meet that understands her is like a member of her family, right? And so I think that there is, and I think that the scene that I bumped on really hard, which is in the restaurant in like the old neighborhood, I think that's probably what it's trying to do is like these two understand each other in a way that no one else could understand either one of them probably, right? Because they actually are tied up in the same like family drama, corruption, and like, we've seen what happens when outsiders get involved romantically with members of the Corleone family, and it's, like, always disaster, basically, right? It's Carlo, or it's Kay, or it's it's somebody like many, any of Connie's husbands, right? It's always something really bad. And so maybe there is, like, a real foundation for these two to, like, really see each other and potentially be in love. And I think that that's a pretty solid argument. The problem is that's a pretty generous read, of the movie, right? Like, there isn't a lot in the text that kind of supports that. And if the movie is trying to tell us, like, a byproduct of the Corleone family's life of crime is that Mary feels, you know, like she has no no one outside of the family that understands her, and so no, basically no romantic options or whatever outside of, like, her cousin, who she... did grow up with, didn't grow up with, Uh, seems like maybe not. But if that's the case, then, you know, what does that say about the, like, state of corruption within the family? These movies are, are very, very sure that having Fredo murdered was wrong, right? That was a that was a bad thing <laughs> right, Michael yes. did. This movie yes. is those, these movies are very clear about that to me. But they're yeah. not that clear that that like this relationship is wrong or toxic or or whatever. Like, and I don't even care about the social taboo. But if you're trying to tell me that this is like a 
this is another layer of what's wrong in the Corleone family, then you need to transmit that to me in a variety of ways. And it's really funny to me how, A, Mary and Vinny are not hiding their relationship at all. Like, I feel like like I would be a little scared to tell (laughs) my dad about it. (laughs) They're not hiding it at all. And when people find out, they often do go, well, he's your cousin. But that's like, it's just kind of like a weird quirk. It's not like mm-hmm. sort of a fundamentally like, why don't you feel like you could date outside the family? What's wrong? You know, that kind of question. So I don't know. I just I just wish that the movie came down on like a clearer, what does this mean thematically? Connect it. Where's the connective tissue to everything else that's wrong in the Corleone family? Do that work because that is what you're transmitting, you know, you guys pointed out, this is what gets her killed, basically, is that she's so upset about the fact that she can't be with Vinny. She confronts her father on the steps, and that's what puts her into the line of that bullet. And so if you need to do the work, though, about, like, you shouldn't want to be with Vinny for X, Y, and Z reason, and it's tragic that you feel like you have to because of the culture of your family. Does that make sense? Yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, and you know, not to belabor this too much more, but I, I now I'm imagining an alternate version of this film where we are with her, you know, where where maybe mm. in the first party scene, she has some boyfriend who's not from the family, who doesn't get her, yeah. who doesn't get what all this is, who, you know, she just isn't really compatible with or doesn't is uninterested in. And then she meets Vinny and he's so much more interesting to her and they and they have amazing chemistry and we like them together. Right. You know, to give us a contrast of, you know, why is he so amazing, you know, for her? And yeah, we don't have any context like that for us yeah. to want them to be together. And so, yeah, when it's, you know, when that is such a pivotal thing in the finale where, he, you know, it's it's the, you know, we can't be together. Like, Rose, you're going to have to get off on the lifeboat. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. going to stay on the ship. You know, we, we want to be with Rose as she, like, tries to jump back on the ship. But I am not with Mary at all when right. she's, like chasing after her dad, like insisting he's like ruined her life by, you know, stopping this relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a, if you're gonna hang the pivotal scene of your movie on this relationship, I gotta feel it. And I yeah. just never, ever feel mm-hmm. it. Fair. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the core. It's another also weird thing that that's the case in this three-hour movie that like there wasn't time for that. Like I wish right. they had spent- right any time on that and less time on the corporate buying of the people and you have to invest or you have to buy their shares, but then you have to fly because it has to be in person, but the Pope is sick. And so we're going to wait. Like all of that is, was too much. Like I feel Mm. like the amount of screen time it took proportionate to its thematic role or even like plot role in the story was, was Mm -hmm. too much. And I feel like that's, kind of the case with all all the things that the threads that are in this movie that could have been great it doesn't feel like enough time was spent on them and when time is spent on them as we were saying as you pointed out earlier Trisha it's very on the nose this is the scene where we're going to tell you how you're supposed to feel about this thing now and then we move on 
Yeah, absolutely. And that might be a good time to talk about The Godfather Coda, which is the the new cut of the movie. And unfortunately, as I said, it's basically the same movie. So it's not not going to deal with a lot of those problems. But it does some some big things, and then it does a bunch of little things. The, the first big thing it does, well, other than the title, like just sort of saying, hey, this isn't one of the one of the Godfather movies. This is a PS epilogue kind of thing. But it actually opens with the scene of him, Michael, talking to the cardinal who has like the $769 million debt. And it's interesting to open with that scene because, it, first of all, it puts the immobiliari plot right up front. So it's mm-hmm. not this like confusing thing that happens 45 minutes into the movie when you're like, wait, what is this new thing? But more importantly, it has... Michael saying, I want to go legitimate. Everything from now on is going to be legitimate. And then there's the theme of forgiveness brought up where the the Cardinal's talking about the time he trusted someone else with the money because he's never been much of a banker and like that whole thing. So it sort of kind of sets up the movie and gives it a little bit of momentum where you can see how the thematic thread and the actual church thread are all kind of coming off of this opening. I don't know that it's that it works super well, but it's an interesting choice. And then, yeah, there's just a lot of general pacing and trim scenes, scenes that are just, they cut half of it out. The movie's actually shorter than the theatrical cut. And I have not seen both cuts enough to really be able to tell how much that is. But but basically it was Coppola saying like, let's try to keep things more in focus. Let's try to keep the pacing a little bit better. And, and you know, just general things. I, I enjoyed watching it when I watched it. But again, it's, so much of the movie is just the same because it's, you know, just there's not new footage or anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. The most fascinating thing, though, is in a movie called The Death of Michael Corleone, guess what doesn't happen at the end? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <What? interesting. laughs> Yeah. Hang so, on. <laughs> yeah. So it's, so it's a thematic, you know, spiritual death, basically, hmm. is what it does. And I misspoke in our first episode where I said that the recut version talks about the women in his life. It's actually the other way around. The theatrical cut, he is splicing in the footage of Kay and Apollonia right. and Mary and sort of showing him like, yeah, here's what happened to the people that you that you loved in your life and, and here's what happened as a result of your actions. But then in the Coda cut, it's just it goes straight from from the opera house to him sitting in the chair. And it's only Mary that we see in her cut with him dancing. And then he just sits there sort of looking old and miserable in his chair. And then it cuts to black and there's a quote that says, when the Sicilians wish you uh Chantani, it means for long life and a Sicilian never forgets. So just sort of saying like, you know, it's again, you have to kind of read into it, but basically like the last 25 years of his life were probably just misery where he was alone and lost Mm -hmm. all the people he loved because of his own actions and because of who he was. And he couldn't climb out of that hole because as we talked about, he went too far basically. So Mm -hmm. it's an interesting cut. I definitely recommend watching it. I will probably watch it from now on as the third Godfather movie whenever I watch the trilogy, if I watch the third movie. But ultimately, as you were saying, Michael, there are just too many threads that just kind of don't quite work and and are too confusing. So it can't fix all that. It it, it can't just, it's not a brand new movie, but it is just sort of a a bit of a polish over it in general. Hmm. I kind of like that ending from your description of it. Like I was surprising at first, but thinking about it, I kind of like it because I think that's kind of what I get from the the original ending when you kind of, you know, dissolve in on him and he's old and he's sitting there and he's alone. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, you've been here. I hope you're happy. Like, you 
clearly been sitting here in misery at this whole time. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like distracted once he like starts to die and does the dying motion. Right. Partially because I feel like these movies have a couple moments of dying or being dead that is not believable. And this is maybe just a thing I do when I'm watching movies is like knowing that the actors are trying to like pretend to be dead, watch to see where they screw up. And so like when he falls out of his chair, it's pretty good. But there's a moment where he like kind of throws his hand up to catch himself before he hits the ground. And I'm like, okay, well, you're clearly not dead. And earlier (laughs) in the movie, when Al Pacino's at, you know, the the funeral or, you know, the, the showing with the body, I forget the guy's name, but he's, you know, Having his Don, big Don scene. Tomasino. Yeah, mm-hmm. of like, yeah. why you, not me, the yada yada. I could tell that the right side of the frame was a freeze frame mm-hmm. because no. clearly the actor playing the dead body was just like breathing and yeah. being alive. Right. <laughs> but like that was really distracting. Like they didn't add any grain over it. Anyway, it was also a funny moment in the first Godfather when Sonny's beating up the guy in the street. There's some very clearly. Like, oh, yeah. Like missing like, by missing oh, 10 yeah. feet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I just, I've always kind of like giggle at those things. You know who's great at dying, though, is Eli Wallach as Don Altabello. Like, he mm-hmm. just has the best choking. He just has, like, a weird face in general, but, like, his choking <laughs> in the opera house is so good. He also yeah. does, like, weird actual dying things, but, like, his choking is so, like, that is an image I will not get out of my head. Mm-hmm. Well, and that scene brings me to something that I did really like about this movie, which is seeing the evolution of Connie. Yeah. And yeah. seeing her become kind of a matriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. That was part of what was fun about you know, a lot of the characters in the third film was just getting to see, watching these films back to back. And so I, they're all, all these characters are very fresh in my mind. And so it is, it is fun to see characters that you've been living with jump forward 20 years and see how they've evolved and changed. And Connie was, you know, one of the most interesting to me, just the way she was fully invested in the family now after kind of, you know, leaving it for a bit in part two. She is kind of the one now almost like overseeing the continuity of things and kind of keeping in mind who's going to succeed Michael. And I liked her presence. You know, she, yeah. she really embodied that matriarch energy. So yeah, that, that was something I, I really did like about the movie. And I, I appreciated how much her character played a role. Mm-hmm. Speaking about scenes that are good subtext. I love her line when she's like, sometimes I think of poor Fredo drowned yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah it's over now it's in the past and just like i love that that's such a like that's like yes you did a godfather scene <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah right exactly and part of the the promise of this movie and i do think is one of the most enjoyable things to watch about it is checking in on characters that we care about and i think mm-hmm. that that's another reason though like ultimately why i wish for other things from this movie than what it gives me because i miss tom like a I lot. Know, right. Yes. Like I was so hopeful, having never seen Godfather Part Three. I was so hopeful that I might get to spend more time with Tom in this movie, and we don't get the chance to do that. And so, yeah, I just it again. Like I think the whole disorientation is like the cast is so different. Like so few of the people, and I think that's why I love all the Connie scenes, like and all the K yeah. scenes. Like I'm with you on those. I think they're fantastic because I do buy the natural evolution of time. Like I love K's just whole portrayal in this, where you know she's clearly moved beyond 
like that phase of her life where she was, you know, really roped into the Corleone family. And like, it it seemed like death to her to try to leave it. And the stakes were so high for her. Every little word that she said or every little gesture that she made around Michael and like around the family. And you can see that she's really moved on from that. And she is just, yeah, like, Diane Keaton's so good, but she's just like mm. so... I like that they did apparently just let her dress herself in this. <laughs> I mean, she just, her whole, her whole. Worked in um, any hall. Feels right. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I was like, maybe, I don't know. The whole, that's the whole thing with her and Pacino is that they just look like themselves at this point. Like they don't look right. like Michael right. and Kay anymore. They just look like <laughs> yeah. Al Pacino and Diane Keaton, which is fine. I like those actors. But yeah, I think that there's a real believable evolution to both of those characters that we remember from the first couple of movies, I think it works super well in those scenes. And yeah, as you point out, there's there's the natural, yeah, Alex, you were saying like the chemistry is there between Al Pacino and Diane Keaton when they're like walking around in Italy. And like, I think that the trust that has been built up of actors who have worked together for a long time um, or who have worked together before does just go a long way towards making these scenes feel like warm and embodied. And like, there's not any moment between Michael and Connie that I don't absolutely utterly believe. Mm -hmm. And it, it goes beyond the writing. It goes back to like, I have a history with these characters. These characters have a history with each other. These actors have a history with each other. And that all comes through on the screen. Yeah, and there's even, like, smaller characters you don't realize are in these movies. Like, I never appreciated that Al Neary is actually in all three movies before because mm-hmm. we know of him as the guy who kills Fredo, basically. But he is also the guy who shuts the door at the end of the first movie. Yep. And he is mm. throughout this movie, too. And it's, like, one of those characters you wouldn't even notice maybe the first time you watch it, but then, like, the third or fourth time you're like, oh, he there he is. He's still there. And I, I'd never appreciated before that Vincent's mom is the maid of honor from the wedding in the yeah. first movie that Sonny runs upstairs with. And then that's the same actress who's oh. there at the beginning. Like our name's not on the list. Like little things like that, that just, again, make it feel like it is this fully realized world where they are actually bringing people back 18 years later, just to kind of have, give them a couple lines, just to show that they are woven in this tapestry. Mm-hmm. I definitely did not get that. I spent a fair amount of the movie being like, wait, why is he a bastard? And like, what? Uh-huh. Where did, like, where did Andy Garcia come from? And why is his name different? So I just put that together. Cool. Thanks, Brian. That, <laughs> that helps explain a lot. Yeah. Cool. Well, why don't we move into lessons and what lessons we're going to take away from The Godfather Part 3, good or bad. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I did really like about the movie, even just structurally, was the buildup to the opera house finale. Because mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing you want from, you know, kind of like third act of the third installment in a series is like bring all the people together into this kind of very dramatic big scene. And, you know, what's more dramatic than opera? And, you know, we are aware of assassinations, very famous assassinations that happen in these settings. And so it, I just really found it compelling to bring everybody we care about into this space. We have the really, you know, skilled assassin that guy's been built up as being very good at this job. You've got Michael's entire family. You've got his son on stage. You got his family next to him. Like there's so many stakes that have been put into place that I do care about. So I was really riveted during that scene. Whereas, you know, and you know, there's other, you know, Godfather, we're gonna kill everybody montages. It's kind of a staple of these movies. And, you know, sometimes At some big ornate event. <laughs> right. Yeah. And but oftentimes you'll have, you know, like in in the first film, of course, the really most famous one is the the christening of the, mm-hmm. you know, 
where Michael is you know, becoming Godfather and he's not in danger, but you know, all of his sins are playing out elsewhere, all the people he's having killed. But this one almost felt like it was like upping the ante because it was not just all of the enemies being killed everywhere, but also Michael himself is in danger. The danger is there for his family. So it just felt like kind of the ultimate, you know, if you're gonna do like Return of the Jedi, you know, second Death Star blow up scene, this felt <laughs> like the Godfather version of that. Like, let's just go all the way. You're gonna get your, all the guys die montage, but you're also gonna have on top of that, Michael's entire family is in the crosshairs of this assassin. And we don't know how it's gonna play out. And you know, the movie was supposed to be called, apparently, I was reading this, it was supposed to be called The Death of Michael Corleone the mm-hmm. whole time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that, that's now called that you know, on Apple TV. I was looking for Godfather Part 3 and I couldn't find it. <laughs> All I could find was The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. But it's kind of a fun, almost like you know, American Beauty idea right. to just right up front be like, this movie's about the death of Michael Corleone. And then mm-hmm. the whole finale seems to be leading to his assassination. And I, I kind of wish yeah, the movie had been called that because that is a fun yeah, trick to play in our audience to have the expectation there and then to have such a buildup to this opera house scene. So I just think it's a really smart venue for a finale like this. And I, I think it was used perfectly and the tension was built perfectly. And then it, of course, had the surprising ending where it's not Michael that dies after all. Yeah, not remembering how that actually all played out, but being pretty sure that Michael dies in the movie, I was very tense during that mm. whole sequence. Like, it's, just, it's very, very well done. And I also realized I don't know that this is the first movie to ever, you know, stage a, an assassination during an opera or a play. Probably not. But I feel like I have seen things since then that now right. I'm like, oh, I think this is kind of like referencing and nodding to the Godfather, you know, there's right. a mission, a possible sequence. There's mm. a finale of the West Wing season three. That's kind of like in this vein. So the, yeah, it was just cool to see like, oh, there's Francis Ford Coppola still doing things that are notable and the people continue right. to reference. Yeah. Well, I was also going, wait, which movie has the crib going down the stairs? And then I was like, oh no, that's <laughs> the untouchables, <laughs> which also has Andy Garcia yep. <laughs> in the, in the shoot. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Cool. Trisha, put your lesson. Well, yeah, actually, that's a little bit related to my lesson, which has to do with death scenes throughout all of these movies. And I really wanted to make sure that we talk about a few of the best ones. But there is something about, like, some of the most iconic death scenes in cinema ever are in the Godfather movies. And I think I've been, like, trying to pull apart and figure out why they end up being so iconic And I think there's a really cool POV thing that happens with the best ones where they're always just, like, we don't know that they're coming, right? And so, like, I was thinking about Sonny's death in the first movie, which, you know, is just like a hail of bullets, which is kind of like a classic mafia movie thing. It's like, you know, kind of Bonnie and Clyde, like, crime movie Mm -hmm. thing where it's just like an unnecessary number of bullets. (laughs) But we don't know that it's coming for sure and in the moments like the the like tiny beats leading up to it we're starting to realize something is wrong and something is wrong and then it just like kind of explodes in the second movie there's the one where he's standing at the window right and she's Kay goes why are the drapes open or mm-hmm. or something like that and then that's when he realizes and it like it gives him that split second of time to dive onto the floor But again, we don't know it's coming. It's just the assassination attempt comes from out of nowhere. And like we as an audience only get 
two seconds to realize it, but that's not really enough time to like react for us or for the characters. And so like, it's kind of by dumb luck if you get out of the line of fire, but you know, most of the time you can't. And then in this movie, of course, it's the helicopter <laughs> that, comes, yeah. Yeah. that comes down. <laughs> and in all three of these cases, you know, what I'm talking about is is just like, yeah, a rain of bullets basically. But there's an over-the-topness to the violence but that that compounds, like, so you have the unexpected element with our, you know, we're in the POV. We don't know an assassination attempt is coming. We start to realize it, you know, just, just moments and moments right before it happens. But then there's, like, this gratuitous, like, how long the bullets, you know, we hear the gunshots that just go and go and go. Unlike in a lot of other series that have, like, a lot of shooting in them, there's a sense in the Godfather movies that the characters we like could get hit for sure because Vito gets hit, because Sonny gets hit, because lots of characters do end up getting hit from, you know, from time to time. And so I think that that sense of unease and also just like we're always kind of on edge because these movies have trained us that the assassination attempt comes out of nowhere. So like in every scene, we're kind of feeling that in the pacing of like, also, are we vulnerable where we are right now? It's been a while since anyone's tried to shoot anybody. Like, is this a safe place? We're in this, like, penthouse of the casino, but then you hear the chopper blades going, right? I just think there's a really interesting thing about the construction of some of those death scenes. And then that's that's one side of the Godfather iconic death scenes. The other side is just the unexpected assassination attempt method. It's poison tea. It's poison cannolis. It's getting yeah. stabbed with your own glasses. <laughs> Jammed them really hard into his neck. I have yeah. questions, right? Yeah. Or it's like, it's a horse head in the bed. It's like, or you're getting, you know, whatever it is, you're 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 getting hung and thrown off a bridge. So those kinds of deaths are also iconic in their own way, just for their own bizarre inventiveness. And so I think that, I think that there are many lessons to be learned about, like, if you're writing a crime story, you're probably going to need to write some murders. And the Godfather trilogy, including this one, has some of the best murders around for a variety of reasons. So I think if you're interested in writing some good murders, you can pull apart some of these and, and figure out what makes them, again, like literally among the most iconic in film history. Mm. Yeah. Good murders. Yeah. yeah. So that was... Basically, literally my lesson. Aha! So I will add on just addendums to that. So the glasses thing specifically. So I finished watching the making of The Godfather, which I had started before our first episode, but then stopped because I didn't want spoilers for three. So I finished watching it. They talk about that and how that wasn't originally how the murder happened. It was just like the guy goes and like twists his neck and like breaks his neck. But Francis Ford Coppola later thought it would be more interesting to do something new and weird. See? And so it was that. And then apparently the version that they shot was like way too gory. So they ended up having to like cut it a little bit weird in order to not get an NC-17 rating. So I feel like uh, both of those like revision steps probably is what makes that death a little weird. But also something, I think it was the producer talking about how Coppola felt about action scenes and murder scenes. And this person was saying that he doesn't really like them or finds them kind of boring or un- uninteresting and so I was always looking for some Jazz way to make it yeah, <laughs> yeah like special or interesting and so 
as you're identifying, there's these, yeah, the moment before is handled just right to give you just enough of that, like, wait a minute, something's not, what, wait a minute, something's not, ah, and then it yeah. explodes and then is relentless. And it's always kind of accompanied by like, yeah, really graphic, iconic imagery where like I can picture Sonny's death like yeah. shot for shot the moments before, you know, the toll guy like drops mm. the coin and then like ducks and that's when you know like, oh shoot, something's wrong. And then, yeah, the helicopter coming, there's, you know, the rumbling, you know, the T-Rex is coming thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, orange <laughs> falls over and rolls across the table. <laughs> <laughs> or like the drapes, like you're pointing out, like there's, a, there's mm-hmm. like some call to like attention. Again, the helicopter shot, somebody handcuffs the door closed, yeah. like that mm-hmm. image is in So there's always these like very clear, iconic kind of strange images that are attached to the memory of it. And then I think what's also interesting, as you're pointing out about the gratuitous you know, hail of bullets that follows or whatever, is that it? none of these feel like fight scenes or like a scene where there's like maybe right. a way they can like, you know, get out of it. They're not going to roll and then grab a gun and yeah. fight back. It's like yeah. the gods have decided that you are now being attacked and there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. And that it's it's almost, you know, with the helicopter scene, it's very unseen, right? There's like a close-up of a gun, but otherwise it's just a light and you hear a helicopter and bullets are raining down. And same thing with Michael and Kay in the bedroom. Like you don't see the people outside. You just see the bullets tearing up their bedroom. And even with the sunny assassination scene, yeah. like you see that there are people shooting at him, but I don't, you don't get like a close up of them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter who they are. It's just these forces are here and they've decided it is your time to die. Will you make it or not? And so, I, yeah, I think just the the attention to detail and finding a, a unique way to, like, frame it and give an audience an image to associate with each one also goes a long way to making them so iconic and so powerful. Yeah. Unless it's sure. a guy who needs his lucky coat so badly that he can't escape death oh, and yeah. also forgot uh, how to take a coat off a hook. <laughs> That yeah. was pretty weird. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. See, and I forgot about that. That's, that coat yeah. was not so lucky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's my lucky coat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Brian, what is your lesson? Well, you guys have been very dark and dour talking about death for the last 10 minutes, so <laughs> I'm going to switch it up and talk about suffering instead. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the other thing that happens to characters who like have some sort of comeuppance. And I'm going to say this isn't even a lesson as much as an observation, because I don't know that there's a way to put the like BTS stamp of approval on whatever is about to come out of my mouth. <laughs> 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 Which is something I've just noticed in movies, like when a character, like a, it's either a bad guy or a good person who did something kind of unforgivable, irredeemable, and, and they're getting their comeuppance. Like when they're just killed, it's just sort of like, okay, like they're just they're just not around anymore, right? Like so there's no it, it almost doesn't feel satisfying to me. It just feels like, well, they're they're gone. They didn't and like especially when they don't even like see it coming. Like at least if you're choking on a cannoli or whatever, like you, you get that <laughs> sort of like, oh no, I realize what's happened, you know. But then I realize like how much more powerful suffering is to show a character again whether it's a character that you it's something we talked about in our Mad Men episode like I wanted to see Don suffer more for his actions and and not sort of like like have to crawl more through the crap in order to come out on the other side basically and uh, and that is what we get with again the the death of Michael Corleone the spiritual death that he that he has at the end of this movie 
Now, granted, these movies make Michael suffer by killing off the innocent women in his life. So, like, that's not necessarily the way to do it. But is it effective? Is it, you know, uh, is it a way to really, really, really show a character actually paying for their actions in a very powerful way that is not the same as just like, and then they got killed by someone and they're not around anymore. It's like, no, show someone who just actually is dealing with the consequences of their actions for, in in, in his case, decades, right? So yeah, I don't know necessarily that that's a lesson. I'm not saying go make your character suffer, but I, I do realize that I that I want to see, I want to see characters who I want to suffer, suffer and not just get killed. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's my non-lesson for the evening. I want to see them suffer. (laughs) I think there is, yeah, a bridge to a lesson there, which, which is, I think if, if you're in a movie like the Godfather, where the language of, you know, punishment for either ignorance or impulsiveness, like in the case of Sonny or, you know, your comeuppance as Michael Corleone, like in this world, in this movie, the language of how that is communicated is through violence. And so I think Mm. if that is how you are communicating to the audience, like punishment for deeds and all that stuff, that it it does make sense to have, you know, I think the Sonny example is a really powerful example when he is riddled with that many bullets. Like it, it emphasizes like, Oh God, like Sonny, you messed up so hard. Look at, look at how dead you are. Like you messed up so hard. So I think, I think there is a storytelling function that can underline the consequences and the significance of those consequences and the choices that the characters make based on how they are punished or whatever fate they end up meeting. Mm -hmm. Suffer. Yeah, and to both of your points, Brian and Alex, we talk about the, like the title of this being like the death of Michael Corleone. It's like when we hear that title, we are expecting a violent, sunny-like death, right? And then we come to the climax and we're expecting like a you know, very public, probably very bloody assassination in the middle of that opera house in front of his entire family. And so if we had kept that title, what we have is this really fascinating subversion of those expectations where we're reinvited to consider what that might mean. Like, you know, the death that he does end up suffering in the very last few frames of this movie where he's absolutely alone and the camera is set so far back, right? Like the frame is so wide. Mm-hmm. We don't even like really get to see his face when that moment of death arrives and no one is around him. There's just that little dog and it's, it, you know, it's drawing a parallel, a visual parallel in some ways to the death of Vito, right, in mm-hmm. the first Godfather movie. But Vito's with his family. He's with his grandson, mm. right? And Vito's not alone, truly, in the same way that Michael is. And so I think that that's a really interesting, that's obviously a, a thematic undercurrent of all three of these films. And it's to Francis Ford Coppola's credit that, that that's sort of like, was his impulse to, well, how does a life like this end, right? Like, we are expecting it to end, you know, whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword, kind of mm-hmm. like you're going to you're gonna die a horribly violent death. But is that the worst thing that could happen to you after right, this exactly. violent of a life? And I, I do think that that's a really fascinating and moving thematic idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, poor Anthony, like, He's like, I'm going to be in an opera. My family's all going to come. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. But they're like planning assassination. Like they're poisoning people during his opera. It's like, yeah. just let the man. 
He just wants to. He just wants to be <laughs> yeah. alive, man. Yeah. Connie's not even watching him. Connie's just watching the cannoli guy. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> no matter what, he was gonna come out of that and be like, "Wait, what happened while I was in <laughs> <Yeah>. this?" <laughs> My big performance. Can I not have right. one night? Not right. an assassination attempt, people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man, we're in. okay. Well, yeah, that's yeah. All all good thoughts. But like, yeah, there's a lot of. Good things to learn in watching all three of these movies. I think I think there's a reason people study them and talk about them. And they're just it's like it's cinema. It's like film. <laughs> <laughs> this is cinema. Yeah. What have you guys been watching recently? Alex, what have you been watching? So I went and saw the new Scream. Which is just <laughs> called which is just called Scream. Huh. Yes. But it's also I think it's I think it's called just Scream for a very particular reason because these, you know, the best screen movies are always commenting on our times. The moment we're in in entertainment or horror movies or whatnot, this movie does not disappoint in that respect. And so I really loved it because I do love the Scream franchise. I love the meta aspect of it all. I love Scream 4. It was all about kind of like influencer culture and the idea of, you know, the bad guy in that movie, kind of spoilers, you know, wants fans, not friends, you know, so, so th- there's always kind of a social commentary happening and I won't give away, you know, what the twist is of this yeah. movie, but it, it, it definitely is commenting on our times as well. Um, and I think I, I feel it, discussions we've had recently about the state of cinema and like what is going on with this industry is reflected in this movie. And I think is rather cathartic. If so, the killer's um, a virus, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's all. That's all I'm going to say. But if you're a fan of the Scream franchise, if you're a fan of the kind of meta aspect of it, I do not think you will be disappointed with the new Scream. It's not directed by Wes Craven, obviously. It's uh, new new filmmakers, but they really, I think, honor the franchise, and they do they do like they bring it. Like it's it's a fun, genuinely like tense, you know, death scenes. It's it's, it's very well done. So I highly recommend the new Scream if you are into that kind of movie. So not for Trisha. I was going to say, so no. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. Still very bloody, very violent death scenes. Okay. Would You would not appreciate it. Okay. I think of the screen movies as like cartoon horror, though. <laughs> I think of them yeah, as although like, this one does like push it. Like yeah. there, there are some mm-hmm. pretty intense death scenes. Yeah. Interesting. Seeing Scream 4 with you is like one of my most like favorite film going Aww. like memories <laughs> ever. Because I don't think I'd seen a Scream movie before that. I think it was just like. That was your first one? I think so. That's great. And I remember thinking, <laughs> oh, wait, why is this movie super clever and fun? Like these movies yeah. are, like have something to say while also being compelling. Um, so I'm excited to see the new one. Excellent. Cool. Trisha, what have you been watching? So I saw the new Adam McKay movie, Don't Look Up, which is on your Netflix. And like overall, I had a good time watching it. It was depressing as hell. So if you somehow don't know what it's about, it is a thinly veiled metaphor. But the the actual plot of the movie is about a giant comet that's heading toward Earth and basically the like public perception slash like belief, disbelief in the end of the world coming or the scientists, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence play scientists that are trying to convince the world that the end of the world is coming and no one is listening to them, including the president, Meryl Streep, and her son, Jonah Hill, and a lot of other people. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people are in it, like... Sorry, three Kate quarters Blanchett of the way awesome. through. Yeah, Timothy Chalamet strolls in like uh, very right. late in the movie. Or skateboards <laughs> in, I'm sorry. Anyway, 
It's a star-studded cast, as you might have surmised. Mark Rylance is in there doing a very weird performance with some fake teeth. And it's like, you know, like I said, it's a pretty heavy-handed political movie. But if you are familiar with Adam McKay as a filmmaker, you shouldn't be surprised by that fact. And I came away from it, as I usually do from his movies, going like, sure, why not? Like, yeah, why do movies have to be subtle? <laughs> why do they <laughs> yeah, have right. to, like act like they're not about something. If they are about something, maybe they should just act like they are about Especially something. Especially satire. Sure, yeah, and this is and this is satire. I think some people want a little more subtlety from their satire mm. rather than like, this is very much of hitting the point with a mallet, like or like a, like a cartoonishly large mallet. A comet. Yeah, or a comet, you might say, rather than like a razor blade. Uh, so yeah, I, I think... If you if you are looking for subtlety from your films, don't look up. It's not for you. And if you are looking for a way to escape from our current apocalyptic times, <laughs> it is also not for you. But if you want to laugh because otherwise you're gonna cry, then maybe <laughs> then maybe don't look up is a movie you might enjoy. So yeah. Anyway, it's a uh, on your Netflix. You can check it out. Yeah, I, I found that it was almost like. I didn't even judge it as a movie. No, it's it was not. Just no, like, it's right. This is just a like movie. a primal scream. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I understand, and yeah. I am also screaming with you. Yeah. Thank you for like giving me some catharsis for this yeah. primal scream that I also have. That's a good way to think about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely not not a movie. It no. is this other thing that yeah. was terrifyingly cathartic. All at the same. Yeah, yeah. it felt like it felt like weird, intense group therapy or something. But, <laughs> right, but it didn't make me feel better. Right, no. like we're not going to try to fix it because we yeah. can't. Let's just like hold, like let's hold the space for each other. And <laughs> as as everything Scream. is terrible. about the end yeah. of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> awesome, Brian. What have you been watching? It's funny because I was I was not comparing these two movies, but they're both movies where if you've seen the filmmaker's previous work, then it. it gives you sort of guidance for how to watch it. I watched The Card Counter, the new oh, yeah. Paul Schrader movie with Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish, Ty Sheridan, and Willem Dafoe. And, I, you know, it's like if you watch the trailer, you're like, oh, it's this cool, sleek, rounders, Ocean's Eleven type movie. But if you've seen First Reformed, oh, yeah. <laughs> like Paul Schrader movies generally. For, right. Then you have a better idea of like the really dark turn that takes about 20 minutes in where it's like, oh, okay, that's what's going on here. Very much not for the faint of heart. I would say like First Reformed and Taxi Driver, which Paul Schrader wrote, I assume most people know that, but they're like good litmus tests. It has the same dark brooding tone. And for me, Card Counter sticks to landing better than some of the other movies. I was not the biggest fan of the third act of, of First Reformed. I also realized that all three of those movies revolve around a character hatching like a horrifying plan. And then the <laughs> dramatic question becomes like you as the audience morbidly curious about will whether or not plan, it's, yeah. yeah, will they actually do? So I'll leave you with that. It's like I, one of those movies I don't want to say much about, but like if you are, if you're okay with a, with a feel bad movie that's with an awesome performance from Oscar, I was like, yeah, Alex, I recommend it. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorites of the year, but it's, it, it's a lot. Nice. Nice. <laughs> All these things that are movies, it's, it's always <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Just the, the bandwidth that this form can hold. What a time we live in. Indeed. <laughs> you know what's um, not a movie and was supposed to be is The Godfather Part 4. 
with right. Andy Garcia continuing as Godfather, De Niro back as Vito, like post Godfather 2 storyline, and then Leonardo DiCaprio as a young Sonny in the early 1940s. So, so that's three another parallel stories. Yes, three. Well, we are getting more Godfather content though. Coming up right. here, we got a mini series coming up and a documentary or a oh, docu-series. Yeah. Cuz it's the one it's about like the making of The Godfather, right? With right. Oscar Isaac as Coppola and But then which I think is a docu-series, but then we're also getting like a fictionalized version of the making of The Godfather, I think. Right. I think that's the one that Oscar Isaac is in with okay. Jake Gyllenhaal as Robert yes, Evans, yes, yes. the studio exec. Yeah. Right. Which I'm, yeah, I'm excited for. That, that. sounds great. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be super fun. More Godfather content for you. Nothing's yeah, ever nice. dead. Because apparently it's the 50th <laughs> anniversary. So mm-hmm. good job, us timing that. Good job, yep. patrons. Yeah. Totally on purpose. <laughs> 4K Blu ray re release in Dolby Theaters coming mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Theaters. <laughs> Excellent. Well, so another thing that's also audio-visual media is Harry Potter 20th Anniversary Return to Hogwarts, Mm. which is what I watched on the first, the new year, because it came out midnight on, and I was like, yeah, all right, let's do it, let's watch it. And it was really fun. I enjoyed it. It reminded me of, you know, learning, like seeing the movies for the first time. And I watched a lot of like, behind-the-scenes making of the Harry Potter movies because there's some really cool filmmaking that went into them and, like, really great directors, obviously, that that worked on them. And it also just seemed like such a fun production to have been a part of and to be, like, growing up on this set of these movies and kind of godfathery where it's, like, it's this family that's continuing from film to film and you're growing up together. And so it was really fun to, like, revisit that some of it was awkward, as you would expect, like seeing some of the people like 20 years later and being forced to like, oh, we've been, we haven't seen each other and we're going to have to act like there's, right. there's cameras here and blah, blah, blah. I will say that Daniel Radcliffe and Helena Bonham Carter are delightful together. Yeah. Like they are so fun and I just want to watch them like do anything for a and period flirt. of time. Right. Yeah. Like this weird like flirt tension that was just so Love fun. It. Yeah, and also reminded me of the thing that I that I got from those movies and and those stories. It's just like the friendship, like just the it's such a good story of friendship. Ron and Hermione and Harry, like let's do anything for each other. And so I don't know. It gave me all the feels. It made me depressed. The twenty years had passed, mm. but overall it was fun. I enjoyed it. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, apparently we've done it. We've talked about the three Godfather films. Maybe when, yeah, the new series comes out or this new content comes out, it'll be interesting to check those out and revisit. Maybe we can talk about that also. Who knows what will happen in the future? But until then, this has been our conversation about The Godfather Part 3. want to say a big thank you to the patrons, as always, for supporting mm-hmm. this show, for getting us past a thousand, for voting for The Godfather, for everyone that voted for Back to the Future trilogy, fifteen hundred patrons. That is next. Very much looking forward to talking about all of those. I want to say thank you to our producer Vince Major and our editor Eric Snyder. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.